Thank you, choir. Turn with me to the Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. This morning uh, we're going to continue and actually finish out chapter 6 here in the book of Acts. If you're visiting with us, we've been in this book now for a number of weeks. This is the 18th message, actually, uh, out of the book of Acts. And uh, it's just been a real challenging time. I can say for myself that God's really used uh, this book, and I think I say it almost every week, really used it to, to challenge me in my own Christian walk, to help me to see things that, uh, that God perhaps wants to address, things that God wants to use. And, and, uh, and it just helps me increasingly to understand the, the, the depth of His grace of what He's done uh, for me as a follower of Christ to even allow me to, to come to know Him, to, to, to have forgiveness. But also God can increasingly helps me to understand that the, uh, the Christian walk is a serious thing. You know, God wants to do certain things through us that can only be done in this culture through the lives of followers of Jesus. And so, you know, for you, hopefully you've you felt a little bit of, of the, uh, the rattling of the cage, so to speak, uh, through this book, what a challenge it is. So let's, let's, let's take, a, uh, take a moment today to, uh, before we look in Scripture, to just pray for God to use this passage again as we close out chapter 6 to really challenge us as followers of Christ uh, in the ways that He sees fit. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, thank you for the preparation to hear your word that's come through our time of worship and our praise to you. Lord, I pray that now as we look into to this uh, chapter in the book of Acts, Lord, that you'd use it to challenge us, use it to take us deeper. But Lord, also I pray for those who don't know Jesus, that you would help them to understand the gospel, the value of the gospel, willing to live for, willing to die for. And Lord, because of its power, we're able to have life uh, and life forever. Uh, because of the forgiveness that comes when we give our lives to Jesus. And so use this passage, we pray, to take us deeper, to take us further in our walks with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'll be honest with you, when I was preparing for this message, I was really considering rolling the end of chapter 6 into chapter 7, as you'll see. And we'll get to chapter 7 soon. But uh, chapter 7 is a very lengthy passage of Scripture. And it's really hard to separate it uh, uh, you know, once you get into chapter 7. Uh, and, and I considered taking the end of chapter 6, just kind of rolling it in, making one big message you know, out of one big block of Scripture. But as I began to study and I just prayed for God to give some insight and uh, some direction, you know, I felt like chapter 6 has some things there that certainly warrant us taking a real close look. Things that may not come out in, initially when we read it, but if we're willing to just press a little and push a little and dig a little bit, I think there's a very, very strong challenge for us as Christians. And I'll just say that this is a message this morning, not because of anything I'll say, but because of the nature of this set of verses we're going to look at that, that is a cage rattler. It's one that really challenges us. If we have ears to hear and if we're willing to really apply God's Word, not just to read it, but let it read us, and not just to hear it, but to really live it out, it's going to require adjustments in our lives. And, uh, and we can go out unchanged. We can go out just more or less living life the way we've always done it if we want. But if we choose to be biblical, you know, we have to confront passages like the one we're going to look at this morning and the principles that we find there. And so chapter 6, closing out chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Let me ask a question before we dig in. How much difference can one life make? If you think through that question for a second, there'd be a range of answers. How much difference can just one single life make? Yeah, I think for us, as we look not just in Scripture, but as we look at history, there's a tremendous amount of difference that can come through the life of just one person who's yielded. You know, you look at Thomas Edison, for example, perhaps the greatest inventor this country has ever produced, invented the phonograph, invented the light bulb, a thousand U.S. patents, plus or, or, or over a thousand U.S. patents are attributed just to that one person, Thomas Edison. You look at Captain Sully Sullenberger, for example, and you look at his life. Some of you, that name may not have rung a bell two years ago, but he was the one in January of 09 who put U.S. Airways Flight 1549 down in the Hudson. As a result of that, 155 people were rescued and their lives were preserved had he not chosen to, to, uh, re, to respond to the crisis he faced in the, in the way that he did. 
You say, how much difference does one, does one life make? You ask those 155 passengers or their families or their close friends, they'd say one life can make a tremendous difference. Life can make a difference both for good and it can make a difference for bad. It can make a difference for the positive and make a difference for the negative. Six million Jews were lost during the Holocaust, directly attributed to one individual. That person was Hitler. Just the mention of his one name now uh, uh, brings about instant judgment upon him and upon his life. Why? Because of the decisions he made, because of the difference that his that is life made for the worse. And so one life can make a tremendous difference, many times for good, sadly, many times for bad. We have a tendency, whenever we look at the concept of the difference of one life, we have a, di- a tendency to downplay the difference that can come through one life that is yielded. But listen, if we're willing to look at life and to sift that life through eternity, and if we're willing to look at a life that is fully devoted to Christ, fully yielded to Jesus, willing to apply the principles, the truths of Scripture, and to live life according to the truth of God's Word, if we can look at the value of that one life, the difference that, it can, be, that, that can be made through that life, it would take eternity to count the difference and to truly measure the difference that's made. And what I want us to do this morning as we close out chapter 6 here in this book of Acts is I want us to look at the life of one person who made a difference, a person that you've heard of perhaps, maybe you've not read so much about him, but that person's name is Stephen. Acts chapter 6 captures, along with chapter 7, the bulk of what Scripture tells us about the life of Stephen. Stephen is not mentioned anywhere else except in the book of Acts in Scripture. Even there in that book, we don't read an awful lot about him, but what we find, though it doesn't... Though, though what we read of of him does not carry a lot of volume, the impact and the focus and the intensity of what Scripture tells us about him is incredible. Stephen was a person who was very in, an interesting individual when we read of him in Scripture in the pages of Acts. He was a person whose life made a huge, it made an enormous difference. And he paints for us a picture of what God, I believe, intends for every person who chooses to yield their life to the person of Christ. Stephen was one who went from being a waiter, literally, to a world changer, literally. Stephen was one we read of him earlier in chapter 6 in the first seven verses. We spent two weeks, the past two weeks, on those first seven verses. When we look at him there, those first seven verses of Acts chapter 6, we find that he literally was one who waited tables. He was one who was put in place of leadership as a a Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jew who had come to Jesus, who had placed his faith in Christ. He was one of seven that were chosen to help serve food to the widows of the early church in Jerusalem that were being overlooked whenever that food was distributed daily. It, 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 there was a risk of there being a division right down the middle of that church. And so they decided, let's choose seven men full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, who have good reputation, and let's give them the task of serving food to these widows that are being overlooked. And so Stephen was a waiter. He started out, he was not an apostle. He was not one that we read of uh, elsewhere in Scripture, who was one of the original 12 disciples of Christ. He was a waiter. He waited on the needs of the widows in his church. And yet God would use his life to literally change the world, as we'll see as we begin to work through this passage of of Scripture. Stephen was the first recorded martyr in the Christian church. He's the first person recorded in history that gave his life for the sake of the gospel, gave his life directly because of his association, because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, verse 5, if you look there in verse 5, he is described there as one who is full of faith, one who was full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 describes him as one who is full of grace and who was full of power. He stands as a reflection of the heart of the early church, and he reminds us that for true followers of Christ, there will be, number one, cost to embrace, and number two, there will be investments to be made. 
Stephen embodies, he captures for us the heart of the early church, the cost that was often embraced by these followers of Jesus, and the investment that was made through lives that were yielded to Jesus and that were yielded to the call that he placed on their life. So Stephen is a tremendous figure in New Testament history. He's not mentioned often, but I'm telling you, he's one of those mountaintop pinnacle uh, people that we read of in the pages of the New Testament. When we look at him, I'll just have to say, he is extremely convicting for those of us who are followers of Christ. If we look at him, and if we look at him accurately, if we look at him honestly and objectively, God will use his life to bring an awful lot of conviction to those of us who claim the name of Jesus. And the way he operated, the way the early church operated, brings tremendous conviction to the, early, to, to the church of today and to those who are followers of Jesus today in the 21st century. Here's the issue. I, I think the church today, uh, the church of the 21st century, especially in this culture in which we live, does not understand the cost that is often embraced by followers of Jesus. You know, there are third world churches, there are churches that are in the 1040 window, world day, whatever you want to call it, that are, their, their borders are closed to the gospel. If you get in there, you get in and it's illegal. You are not operating on the, under the laws of their country. You're operating under the laws of God to get the gospel where it needs to be. There are places today where people who follow Christ are facing tremendous cost not because they're just associated with Jesus, but because they're living their lives for him. When I was in seminary, I remember there was a fella, uh, two guys specifically that stood out to me. Both were from Egypt. Both of them were blacklisted from their country. They could not return. And if they did, their names would have been pulled off a list and they more than likely would have been imprisoned upon their entrance to the country. They were blacklisted because of their faithfulness to present the gospel, because they were ministers of the gospel of Jesus. One of them specifically uh, had, he was just a little tiny fella, probably barely five foot tall and very meek, very timid. I heard a, an audio tape of him preaching in his language, <laughs> in his original language in Egypt. Man, he was an absolute fireball. You wouldn't even imagine it was the same person. His name was Camille. And uh, he had faced, or not ju- faced not just imprisonment, but he had had his library confiscated and, uh, and ultimately destroyed. He had done time himself where he was uh, uh, tortured in prison. He, at one point, had been uh, fastened to a metal uh, uh, bed springs and electrocuted. He was burned because of his relationship with Christ, ultimately blacklisted from that country. We don't know what it means to embrace the cost of following Jesus. I mean, let's just be honest. We don't understand, and we don't, we don't come to grips firmly with what it costs us to follow Christ. And sadly, at the same time, though we don't understand what it costs to follow Jesus, at the same time, we don't always understand what it means to make a true investment for the sake of Jesus as well. Stephen stands in stark contrast to the believers of today, and the early church in Jerusalem and the pages of Acts stands in stark contrast to the churches of today. Our churches are just different. Man, I'll just say, I've, I've been in churches in, in different places. I've been in churches in Hungary and, and uh, the Philippines and here, different places, Mexico, I guess. I, I've been churches, as you have probably, different places. Church here in America is just different than it was 2,000 years ago in the first century in the New Testament era, in the New Testament world. It's just different. I mean, there's no really getting around it. It's just different today than it, than it was then. And I think largely the reason that it's so vastly different, especially in our country, is because Christians today are so vastly different than Christians in the first century. The way we live out our faith, the way we seek to, to walk with God, we have redefined Jesus and we have redefined His call, largely in the churches of our culture. We have repackaged Jesus to be someone taken from the pages of Scripture, and we've repackaged and we have refined Him, so to speak, to fit our agenda of who we want our Savior to be. 
We have repackaged the call of God upon our lives, the call to, to, to live the gospel and to share the gospel. We have redefined what that means to the point to where for many Christians today, living out their faith in the 21st century America, we find that the church is different, Christians are different, because we have made Jesus into who he was never intended to be, according to Scripture. We've made church into what it was never intended to be. We've made the call of God what it was never intended to be. And we've formed it, fashioned it, formulated it to fit our agenda and our life and what is most comfortable for us. And it's almost as though we come to him to get our fix when we need him, we need a rescue, when we want a blessing. But when it comes to answering the demands that he places on the life that comes to him, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We've just formulated and fashioned and redefined that into meaning something that God never intended. And what we have as a result are a lot of Christians that do not know the power of God, who have no testimony to give. They do not have any experience of God truly working in or through their lives. And churches that are anemic, churches that are weak, churches that are scattered, and churches that are on their best day, on their best day, unable to take the gospel message of Christ to a culture that is dying in need of a Savior. And that's not the way it was in the first century, I'm just saying. It just wasn't that way. They were not all like Stephen. They were some Ananiases and Sapphiras like we saw in chapter 5 who were uh, duplicitous, they were deceitful, they were hypocrites. You know, uh, there were people like that in the early church. But by and large, the culture, the, 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 the temperature of the early church was one where they were just flat, both feet in, in the deep end, way over their heads, just submerged and, and committed to Christ. And God changed the world through them. And so as we look at Acts chapter 6, how much, lie, how much difference can one life make? Let's answer that question by looking at the life of Stephen. Picking up in chapter 6 of the book of Acts, beginning in verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came, away, came up to him and they dragged him away and they brought him before the council they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene uh, Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Let me just walk back through this passage quickly and just pull out a few things to help give some clarity. And then I want to apply two principles that I hope will be an encouragement and give some direction for us this morning. If you look in verse 8, what we find there is that Stephen is described as being a man who is full of grace, full of power. He was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Those wonders and signs, I guess, could be most accurately dis described uh, as miracles. God was performing miracles through Stephen, miracles that gave validity to the message he proclaimed. You read of that often in the pages of the book of Acts. You'll find that tremendous signs and wonders were being performed, miracles were being done, and the purpose of that 
was so that the gospel message would be validated through these followers of Jesus. And so Stephen, this waiter who had previously been waiting tables, was one upon whom God had placed tremendous power. He had placed a call upon his life and was performing wonders and signs through him. He would face opposition. Verse 9 captures a little bit of this opposition for us. And it would come from two, maybe three different directions. One direction would come from a place called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, who was the synagogue of the freedmen? Your King James Version, if you read that version, may say the synagogue of the libertines. That's the same people. Let me just share a little bit of who scholars say that they were. Back in the year 63 BC, which around now we're in 33, the year AD 33, so uh, close to 95 years or so before this uh, uh, point in the book of Acts, uh, the city of Pompeii would be taken by the Romans. Now, the Jews who were living in that city were taken captive, they were taken hostage, they were taken by the enemy back to the city of Rome. Over a period of time, they would be set free, they'd be let loose, and many of them would return to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. But through those years, of course, they would raise families, and they would grow, they'd propagate, they would expand in number, to the point to where there would be many of them who who were descendants of those who were once uh, 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 slaves of the city of Rome who'd been set free. And there were so many of them, they would basically set up their own synagogue in the city of Jerusalem. Now, it has been estimated that there were perhaps hundreds of synagogues around Jerusalem at this point in the city of, of, uh, or at this point in in the book of Acts. And there was a temple, but there were many synagogues or gathering places for the Jews. And so it is assumed and understood that one such synagogue was the synagogue of the freedmen, the those who had been descendants of those that were taken captive by the Romans and then ultimately set free. These were Jews who had not come to Christ. They did not embrace the gospel message. In fact, they began to oppose it here through Stephen. And they were coming against him with ferocity. We'd find there in verse 9 as well, there were Cyrenians and Alexandrians that were in that number. Both of those were regions or cities in North Africa where there were large Jewish populations that were there. And then also it says Cilicia and Asia were represented. So you had two, maybe three different groups of Jews who had not come to Christ that were in direct opposition to Stephen on this account. Now where was Peter? Where was John? We have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us where the apostles were. For all we know, it was Stephen and a bunch of people who were opposed to him just flat planting his feet and sharing the gospel. And we don't have time to get there. We will. But in chapter 7, It captures all that Stephen would say in response to the council of the Sanhedrin. And you'll find if you read through those pages, it's three and a half pages in my Bible, that he just laid it on the line. He did not mince any words, and he laid the gospel out there. And the ultimate cost would be his own life. And so he faces opposition. Verse 11, we find that they would begin to operate by secretly uh, uh, inducing other men to speak false words against him, real similar to what Caiaphas did with Jesus in the book of John when Jesus was being tried. He had six trials. All of them were just a farce, illegal in nature. Three were the Romans, three were the Jews. And we find that with Jesus' trial, Caiaphas as well would seek false witnesses. The enemy operates the same way. He's bringing false witnesses against Stephen here. And it says in verse 12 that they stirred up the people. They stirred up the people. The Greek word is the Greek word sunkaneo, which means to throw into confusion or to throw into commotion. And so this was almost a mob atmosphere. Stephen is he's taken by force. He's dragged before the, uh, the council. It says there later in that passage, the council was the Sanhedrin. It was 70 members of, uh, of Jewish ranks who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Very intimidating group. They were the highest ruling Jewish council of the day. And here's Stephen standing before this group of 70 with all these, this opposition against him. And he's put on the spot to either stand for or to run from the testimony of Jesus. And so we look at that passage of Scripture, 
what we find is, is that he was more than willing to embrace the cost. And as a result of it, his life made a tremendous investment in eternity. Stephen would be stoned. His life would be given. He's the first martyr recorded in history. And his blood would serve as the seed of the Gentile church, of Gentile Christianity, because upon his, his murder, basically, for the faith, we'll find as we go into Acts that the church in Jerusalem would scatter largely. And that gospel would make it to Samaria, to Antioch, and then to other regions of the world, and then ultimately to us. And so Stephen's life was an investment, an investment for those who were not of a Jewish culture to ultimately come to Christ. So what are a couple of principles that come out from this passage of Scripture? I've left myself 15 minutes, which is good. I think we're going to need it. Two principles. The first principle is this. Practicality is often the greatest enemy of obedience. Practicality, in other words, making the practical choice, is often the greatest enemy of obedience to God. When we compare and contrast our church today of the 21st century to the early church, Christians of today to the Christians of the book of Acts, we find that in comparison to those who were all in, completely devoted followers of Christ, that for many of us today we appear to be nothing less than just people who ride the fence. Fence riders in comparison to the book of Acts, the Christians that we read of there. As we look at our lives today in comparison to those in the early church, we find ourselves to be fence riders in terms of devotion to Christ. I believe that the reason that that is the case, that so many of us choose to ride the fence rather than to be reflective of these early followers, is because it does not appear to be practical for us to get off that fence. It appears to be more practical for us to live out a casual Christianity It appears more practical for us to live a life that flies under the radar of the world, that doesn't bring any attention to ourselves. It appears more practical for us to just kind of live life on our own terms and to live life where we don't really attract a lot of opposition, it really doesn't draw much much heat to ourselves, but at the same time really doesn't accomplish much for the cause of Christ. Our lives are lived on the fence because it doesn't seem practical to get off of that fence. Now when we look at Stephen, whenever we read of this account here beginning in verse 8, I can just say to you, for, for Stephen, he was not one who lived life based on what was practical. He lived it based on what would be obedient. And let me just say, one of, the most, one of the strongest things I think that you'll hear me say this morning is this, that if you wait until it is practical to follow Christ and to obey Him, you will be waiting a long, long time before you ever obey and before you ever follow. And the reason for that is because sometimes what God calls us to do, sometimes the demands that He places upon our lives as His followers, as His disciples, sometimes what the Christian life requires seems to be the least practical thing to do. For Stephen, listen to me, Stephen could have easily taken the practical route. And had he done so, here's probably what he would have said. You know, I can't afford to speak up for the cause of Christ. I can't afford to stand for the gospel. Because if I do, it may cost me my life. It may cost me harm. I remember that they crucified my, my Lord Jesus, and so they may come after me as well. It's not practical. God gave me my body, and after all, my body is supposed to be yielded to Him, and it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't want to hurt His temple, does He? And so certainly it would be impractical for me to stand and speak and maybe face opposition as a result. That's what He could have said if He took the practical road. 
Stephen could have said, you know, I'm one of only seven men in this growing, vibrant, expanding church taking care of these widows, these Hellenistic uh, uh, followers of Jesus, these Hellenistic Jews who were widows and being overlooked. I'm only one of seven, just seven men that have been put in place to help meet their needs. It's not practical for me to speak up. It's not practical for me to surrender my life and to to give my life as a martyr for Jesus. Who's going to take care of the widows? I'm only one of seven. Who's going to take care? It's not practical for me to do that. There are many times that obedience is not practical. It is not practical to assume that the way we become first in the perspective of God is to place ourselves as last and least of all. That's not practical. It's not practical to find our lives, as Scripture says, by losing them, surrendering them to to someone else we've never even seen with our eyes named Jesus. That's not practical. It's not practical for me to have my sins paid for because somebody else died in my place. That's not practical. It's not practical for me to assume that someday I'm going to get to heaven because I've, even though I've lived a life where I sin every single day of my existence and somehow I can expect and even have the assurance and the 100% hope that I'm going to go to heaven the day that I die because God has attributed to me and he has called me righteous because of Jesus' payment on my behalf and my faith in him. That's not practical. It's not practical for me when people persecute or whenever people come against, whenever people choose to oppose us. It's not practical for us to choose to respond to them with love and with grace and with kindness. Jesus said not to lash out or take vengeance on our enemies, but to love them and to pray for those who persecute you. That's not practical. And if we wait for our Christian faith and our want with God to be the practical thing to do, listen, I'm just saying, man, we will never follow him. The reason Stephen made the difference that he made was not because he made the practical choice, but because he got off the fence and made the obedient choice, and God made a tremendous investment as a result through his life. A 21st century culture right here in our own country, right here in this city, right here on these islands, possibly even right here in this church, has produced a Christianity that cares an awful lot more about our rights than his desires and claims upon our lives. It's just that simple. A 21st century within the walls of the church has produced a generation, perhaps two or three, that are far more passionate about life on our terms than life on his terms. And so what happens as a result of it? We spend our money and we live our lives and we chase our pursuits and we drive our fancy cars and we, assume, we, 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 we uh, accumulate all of our fancy little gadgets and we play all of our little games and we chase our dreams and we climb our ladders and we do life on our terms rather than on his. And as a result, what we find is, is that we live life in such a way that no investment is made and whenever we stand before God, there will be no reward to claim because our lives did not make a difference for anyone but ourselves. We spend more on the things that matter to us. Uh, man. We spend more on our toys and our games and our wireless internet and our cable television than we do to get the gospel to people who are dying to hear it. You know, I really wrestled. I write out my, my messages manuscript. That, I know that's backwards. <clears throat> That's just the way God wired me, I guess. And, and so it's not often that I shoot from the hip. You know, there are times, I guess, where I feel like God may direct me a different direction, something to share. But typically I have them written out. I try not to use them a whole lot, but I, I try to be familiar with it enough. But 
it's rare that I just say something that I wasn't planning to say. And that was something I put in my notes. I really wrestled with it. I prayed about it. God, I don't know if I need to go there. <laughs> in the first service, I felt like I needed to go there. And since the cat's out of the bag, I guess I'd probably need to go there here too. You know, we, and don't take this as a, as a little soundbite for our Beyond Measure campaign, our capital giving campaign. It's not intended that way. It's just a, an example it's just an application for, for many of us. Speaking to our church families, a lot of you are visitors. You've only been here for a short time, maybe even your first week. This is not aimed for you. This is aimed at those who are part of this church family. You know, we, we embarked on a journey to build buildings here because we needed them, because God made it very evident to me, to our leadership, and then ultimately we as a congregation embraced it. That God was leading us to take a really big step of faith to build the buildings that were needed. We had no, well, I won't go into all of it. You know what's here, and we need it at all. And the purpose was not so we can have big buildings to say, hey, look what's been done, but because it would an- allow us and enable us in the years to come, hopefully immediately, to start filling those, those spaces with people that were being impacted by a relationship with God. And so we were convinced as we went in. We voted as a church even and embraced it. We knew going in, this is a $3.2, $3.3 million project. Um, you know, we're, 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 this is going to be sacrificed. Leftover Coke money, leftover coffee money is not going to pay for something of this magnitude. And so we, so we gave. We made our pledges, 183 families at the very beginning. My family was just one of, uh, of many. I don't know what anyone pledged. I don't know who's pledged. I could go down this row and I wouldn't have a clue who, who on this row. I don't even know in our staff. Half our staff could have not pledged and I wouldn't even know. I just chose at the very beginning. I'm, I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't go there with tithes and offerings. If you ever come to me and say, oh, I hadn't been able to give. Man, don't tell me that. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even have a clue. All I know is what our family does. And, there, there, and there's a reason for that. I'm just human. You know, I'm just a guy. I, I battle the flesh. And if, you, if I knew what people pledge, what people give, you know, I, the first time they criticized me, I'd probably have something to say. You know, they didn't like the sermon. I thought it was pretty good for a buck a year. You know, I'd kind of, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, and I just don't want to go there. I'm just human. <laughs> I mean, I got enough to deal with as God tries to mold me out of the image of Brooks into the image of Christ, and I don't need one more thing on top of the heap. So I don't know. So I don't, I don't say what I'm about to say directed at any person, any family. All I know is, of, of, is us, Susie and me, and our kids, our family. But at the very beginning, we've had a few more that have added in since then, but we had 183 families that pledged at the beginning. And though I never saw names and though I never saw amounts, I did see a breakdown of the different ranges within our church. And of the different ranges that went from small to large, and, and that's not even the issue so much... But within the ranges, as I looked at the percentages, over 40% of our, of our people that committed to the project pledged $3,000 or less over the three years. Not for one year or for two years, but over the three years. That's $1,000 a year. Now, here's why I wrestled with this. And I hope over eight years plus now, you know my heart enough. I hope you understand that it's about obedience. It's not about om- amount. But... Let's just be real. We know where we all live, don't we? We all know what our priorities are. And I began to look at that number and I began to think, you know, 40% plus to a $3 million plus dollar project that we made clear all the way through, we got to be all in. Our ministry is going to suffer. We're going to be paying out of money that should go to ministry. We're going to be using that to pay for buildings. And so either vote it down if you're not in or be all in. And I look at that number, and I'll have to say, it troubled me that over 40% of our people 
who were part. It's $3,000 or less for three years. And here's why it troubled me. It didn't trouble me for the people who are on fixed income, who have sacrificed to be able to do that. That's not even what I'm talking about. And I don't know who those are or who those aren't. What I'm saying is, I think a church like ours, I think I see the blessing that God's given many of us. I think it's really easy to see that there was probably for a significant number less sacrifice perhaps than more. And I began to think through, and I actually did a little research. Cable, cable is 60 bucks a month. 60 bucks a month times 12 ends up being about three-fourths of what's needed to meet that particular challenge. Just giving up cable <laughs> for three years, you've almost got that. What's the sacrifice? In other words, here's the translation for me. I don't know. Here's the translation for me. It seems as though perhaps there is a tendency for us to place more emphasis on the Braves and HGTV than there is following obediently where God leads us. And that's just a small slice of the area of obedience. Now, you may take offense at that, and that's okay. I mean, you know my heart. Um, you, know, uh, you know I'm a nice person. <laughs> But I'm just saying, I think I have a responsibility as well to paint a picture best I can see of where we are. And to me, it seems as though there are areas where we could place a lot more emphasis at the cost of sacrifice to see the picture from God's perspective and not our own. You know, it's not always practical to sacrifice. And herein lies the problem. Practicality is often the greatest enemy to obedience. Principle number two. Investment always carries cost. Investment of our lives for the sake of the gospel message yielded to Christ to do with as he desires. That kind of an invested life always carries cost. And I'll just tell you quickly before my time is gone that Christian, if you choose to be all in, or a person who's never come to Christ, if you choose today to turn from your sin that separates you from God, and if you choose to surrender your life completely to Jesus, just asking Him to come in and to forgive you and to take over, if you choose to do that, it's going to cost you. I'll, I'll just say, Jesus never minced His words. He didn't try to pull, you know, paint one picture and then once you're in, oh, I forgot, there's a fine print disclaimer here. It might cost you. No, he didn't do that. He told you. I mean, it's just going to cost you. Expect that there's going to be tribulation. Expect that it's going to cost you. And these early followers paid the cost. And if you go all in and you go to the deep end over your head, fully submerged and yielded to Christ, it's going to cost you. There will be relationships that, will, that you will lose of people that were once your friend when you were like the world, but won't be so much friends because you're more like Christ. You're going to lose friends. It'll cost you friendship. It may cost you family members. It may cost you your job. There will be vocations that will, doors will be closed to you. You cannot in good conscience take positions and jobs as a fully devoted follower of Christ. God just will not let you. It will cost you certain open doors of opportunity that could have reaped great financial rewards, but you know you can't do it because it's a conflict with your fully devoted walk with Christ. Singles, students, there will be relationships that God will say no to you because of your fully devoted following of Jesus Christ. They'll be off limits. That person is not for you. Do not go there. 
There are activities in our lives that are off limits that God will not allow us lest we disobey Him to pursue them. It costs us to be fully devoted followers of Christ, to make an investment for the cause of Christ. Stephen absorbed that cost, not for his salvation, but because of it. And as a result, he made an investment that resulted in you coming to Christ. And so what does it take to win a neighbor? What does it take to win a family member? What does it take to win a neighborhood, to win a campus, to win a city, to win a world? I'll tell you what it takes. It takes one Savior and one mouthpiece. One Savior to die and rise and one mouthpiece to proclaim it. And I'll just say this and I'm done. The Savior is already accounted for. <laughs> and His name's Jesus. The mouthpiece. Well, that one's up to you to decide. And so what difference does one life make? Stephen's life changed the world. The difference your life can make, only you can say. With heads bowed and eyes closed. God, your word paints a clear picture, and we're grateful for it. Lord, thank you that you don't leave us on an island not knowing if the directions are trustworthy, not knowing if the instructions are clear. Lord, you, you tell us what we need to know. You tell us of the life-changing message of the gospel, that Jesus came for sinners just like us, and he died on a cross he didn't deserve. And he rose again three days later, proving himself to be the God he always claimed to be. And he stands ready to, to take over the life that calls on him by faith and in repentance. And so today, Lord, I pray for those that have never done that. Those that need a Savior and they know it, I pray today that they would see Jesus as God who died and who rose and stands ready to forgive if they'll just turn from sin and ask him to come in to forgive and to take over. Give them the courage to do it today. Lord, I pray for those of us who've made that decision. You've called us, we've answered, we've come, just like you invited us to. And Lord, help us not to tend towards a casual Christianity. Help us to be fully submerged in the Christian walk for your glory. Lord, help us to see that it will cost us to fully devote ourselves to following you. Help us not to look for the practical choice, the easy out, the easy road, but Lord, help us to be obedient. That when you open a door, as you did for Philip later in the book of Acts, and you say, go, <laughs> we go. When you say, speak, we speak. The Lord will walk so close with you, doing the hard work of quiet times with you each day, reading your word, prayer, living life around other Christians that can challenge and encourage us and sharpen us, that we'll become so close in our relationship with you that we recognize when you move in our lives. And Lord, that we'll be inclined to follow and obey. Not choosing the practical way, Lord, but the obedient way. And Lord, I pray that when the investment is made and we see a difference that comes, help us to give you the glory. And so Lord, today, I pray all over this place, we wouldn't worry about a clock. We wouldn't worry about how many people are between us and the, the aisle. Lord, we wouldn't worry about lunch for these next few minutes, Lord. That we would just concern ourselves with where we are in relation to you. And so I pray, Lord, that we'd be responsive to you. If that means that we pray in the seats where we are, if that means that we slip out and come forward, just to do business with you, Lord, if that means that we walk an aisle and come to me and say, Brooks, I want to give my life to Jesus today. Whatever obedience means today, may we do it. And so bless now the decisions of these, your people, and those who've heard this message. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless them.